There are a bunch of different possible ways to get a sound out of a guitar. You can, of course, pluck the string with a pick. You can also pull the string with your finger. You can hit the string with a long fingernail. Or, of course, you could bow the string or hit it with a drumstick or do any of a number of other techniques. The important thing is the string needs to vibrate and make sound. Past that, use your imagination. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music played by fingerstyle guitarists, music played by guitarists using a pick, and sometimes music that doesn't have any guitar at all. We've got a whole bunch of your listener questions to go through on this Q&A episode, and I'm excited to get into it. So turn up the volume, find a comfy place to sit, and enjoy the show. I've been practicing a lot of guitar lately, and the more I do it, and especially when my chops kind of loosen up and I get a little bit more comfortable with the instrument, the more I find that there really isn't that big of a difference between playing with a pick and playing with your fingers. In fact, so many great players, Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan, a lot of the greats, uh, kind of just switch between the two, and you'll hear them kind of playing some things with their fingers and some things with a pick. So I think there's not quite as much of a dichotomy between those two techniques as some people might think, or as you might think just watching somebody play guitar, and they're actually kind of complementary. The more I practice fingerstyle guitar, the more I find that that actually increases my sort of precision with the pick. And when I play with the pick a bunch, I find that it gives me a different understanding of how the strings are laid out when I go back to playing fingerstyle. So welcome back to the show. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really glad that you're listening. And it's been two weeks since I released the last episode, and in those two weeks, a lot has happened. In particular, the rise of a massive and sustained protest movement in the United States of America about our country's long, long history of racial injustice and oppression of black Americans. I'm not going to get into that here too much. I'm really trying to do my best to mostly listen, educate myself, raise up black voices. But I do want to just say sort of in the purview of Strong Songs as a show about music, and that's something that I hope that you've picked up if you've listened to every episode of this show. It's been clear in the subtext, but I want to make it explicit. And that's that black music and American music are essentially the same thing. All of the music that we love so much comes from the African-American tradition. And, you know, there's they're just completely inextricable. And we wouldn't have all of the music that is so great that I talk about on this show without black musicians who so many times made this incredible genius art in spite of and in the face of horrible oppression from this country that they live in. Every black artist that I've talked about on this show, from Janelle Monet to Aretha Franklin to Nina Simone to Art Blakey and the members of the Jazz Messengers, to Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Cannonball Adderley, so many more, all of them made the music that they made in spite of America. They made American music in spite of America in so many ways, and I think that that is a great national shame. So that's all I'm really going to say about it. I'm going to get onto your questions now, but I think that it's really important to everyone who listens to this show, especially my white listeners, to just really be listening right now to what black activists, black artists are saying, and go educate yourself. Do the hard work. Watch the uncomfortable documentary about the terrible thing that you'd rather not think about. Read the challenging book that for forces you to confront some things that you don't want to deal with because black Americans have had to think about and deal with this stuff their whole lives. They don't have the luxury of just thinking, well, I don't want to think about that, so I just won't. I'll put some links to some good things in the show notes that you can check out, some music-related stuff, some other good reading that I at least have found valuable. And yeah, I hope that you check some of it out. Black Lives Matter. American music is black music. Let's get on with the Q&A. Thanks to everybody who writes in with a question for this show. I have far too many questions to get through, so if you sent one in and I haven't answered it, I may answer it down the road. I do have a huge master document, but I apologize. I just can't get to everybody's question, and that's just kind of how it goes, but thanks so much for sending it in anyways. Don't let that discourage you from sending in questions, though. I'm always welcoming new questions. I really love all of your questions, and you never know what will get answered on the show, like what will work for a given episode. So if you have a question that you want to send me, email it to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. 
Again, that's listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. That's the best way to submit a question. You can find me on social media. Um, I'll put links for that in the show notes. But, you know, while that works, it can be easier for questions to get lost in the shuffle, especially on Instagram, because the messaging is sort of confusing there. So generally speaking, email is the easiest, and by all means, send me more questions. Our first question is actually a correction that I got from a couple of listeners about how I described Angus Young's playing on ACDC's Thunderstruck and the way that he's playing that really cool locked-in guitar riff. So my guess as to how Angus Young played this riff was that he was going between the second and third strings, leaving that open B ringing in between notes. But what I didn't think of, and what I would have seen if I had actually watched the official music video for this song, is that he really does the whole thing on the B string. He just does it on the second string with just one hand, using hammer-ons and pull-offs to make the notes sound out. And it totally works. It's like a really easy and cool way of playing this riff. An interesting thing about the guitar because of the way that the instrument is laid out is that there are a lot of different ways to do uh, a given thing on the guitar, or at least there's usually more than one. It's just that some of them are more efficient than others, and this is certainly the most efficient way to play this riff, and it's also how Angus Young does it. Thanks to the people who wrote in to point that out. Uh, You're totally right, and uh, Angus Young still totally rocks. Anna writes in with a question about the singer-songwriter Fatai, who is an Australian singer that I hadn't heard of and is fantastic. So this was a fun one to answer and also introduced me to a cool artist that I'd never heard. She writes, I really like listening to her music on the elliptical because it has a good beat, but about 30 seconds into the song Roll, it starts a different rhythm and I have listened to it probably 30 times and cannot figure out what is going on. Do you have any ideas? I do, in fact, so it's actually really cool what Fatai is doing here. So let's listen to the section in question from the song Roll by Fatai. And as you will hear, it's a very cool song. Alright, try to count this. Oh man, that's really, really good. So yeah, first of all, wow, that rules. Um, this EP is really good. You should all check it out. Um, what's going on there is a little bit tricky because she is basically adding a 16th note. There's kind of a, like there's a bunch of groupings of four 16th notes and then there's a group of five 16th notes right before they change the groove and land on a new downbeat. Though I don't even know if she and the keyboard player are thinking of it that clinically. Like, that's how I count it. But she kind of just stretches into this different time feel and just adds a little hiccup and they do it together. So it's not like a super scripted thing. It's more something that they feel together. And also the feel of the song changes. So there's a different groove right after they've added that extra 16th note, which is further disorienting. Let's listen to it. I'll count along with it this time, just kind of how I'm hearing it. And what you're going to want to listen for, and we'll listen to it a couple times so you can get it in your ear, but it's basically, I'm going to be counting 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, and when that bar with the extra 16th note happens, I'll count 1, 2, 3, 4, and 1, 2, 3, 4. So I'm not going to say 5 because it's just too hard to say 5, so I'll say 1, 2, 3, 4, and 1. Kind of like that. It's right where she says, now watch me go, which is actually an easier thing to key on in some ways, because like I said, it's not super precise. Like, I don't think that she says, okay, and here we're going to do an extra 16th notes. I think it's more just when she sings, now watch me go, they just go to a new groove and they feel it together. But I'm still going to count it because it's kind of fun to do. Here we go. And one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. Man, that is a hot tune. That is a hot groove. Really good stuff. And yeah, I mean, that hopefully that counting breakdown kind of helped explain what's at least what's going on there. But it's really this that when she sings, so watch me go. It's like, so watch me are all 16th notes, and then go gets two 16th notes, which comes out to five, and then they all land on that downbeat of the move to the right, 
move to the left. They land on that together really, you know, really tightly. So she sings kind of, so watch me go, move to the right. You just kind of have to feel it, really. I mean, like, I think they just feel it together. I don't think they're really counting it super closely, but that is what's going on. And I think keying in on that, so watch me go, move to the right, and just getting that in your head will be kind of the key to keeping the to sticking with them at least but also you're just you're kind of not going to be able to like maintain a steady groove on an exercise machine while listening to this because they're purposefully adding a hiccup to the beat which is just really cool so let that happen and go with it and then get into the new groove because all of the grooves that they're doing on this tune are really really in there and man this is just a great artist so also thank you uh anna for the for the heads up about her Watch me go to the right, to the left, and nobody be ready for this crash to the left, to the right. Our next question comes from Matt, who asks, Can you break down the epic key change in Berlin's ballad, Take My Breath Away? At first, it sounds like they drop a semitone, but then unexpectedly, we end up moving a tone and a half higher. Okay, so what is going on there? Why does it sound like they drop before the key change goes up? Let's listen to the clip in question. All right, here comes the key change. Man, this song just makes me think of Top Gun. This is a pretty good song, and that's a cool key change. So yeah, let me explain what's going on there. So Matt, you are correct. They're going up a tone and a half higher, which I just typically call a minor third. This song is in A flat major, and then it goes up to B major after the key change, which is a minor third. Though they kind of have to get there, and that's the thing that you're hearing as feeling like a downward motion. And it's mainly just in like what the melody is doing over the chords. It moves down after it's been moving up a whole lot of times. And when it does that, it makes it sound like it's moving down, even though they're preparing you to land in a higher place. So like I said, this song is an A flat. The chorus is a very simple chord progression. It goes one, which is A flat, to three minor, C minor, to four, which is D flat, to five, which is E flat. Before the key change though, they change things up just a little bit. They do a kind of a turnaround into the new key. So the key change feels like it lands on one on that B major chord, but the key change begins a bar earlier and they play two chords that set up the downbeat. So you really register the downbeat on that B major chord that you know is the beginning of the new phrase and the new key, but they set it up with an E that then goes to an F sharp, which is four to five uh, in the key of B. So basically the key change happens a bar earlier and it happens by, they put the four and the five chord in the same measure, which lets them set up the B rather than just dramatically landing on a new key. Like say, you know, the key change in I Will Always Love You, they just boom, new key. They don't do a new turnaround to set up the new key that the way that they do um, in this song. So why does it sound like it's going down to Matt? Well, the reason for that is actually the bass line. So the chords are moving up, they're moving in a kind of upward trajectory, but the bass line, which has been playing the same thing throughout this whole song, suddenly goes down when you're expecting it to go up even though the harmony is moving upward and that makes your ear think for a second that you're heading down. So this is what the bass plays normally over just about every chorus of this song just in the key of A flat with no key change. This is what it sounds like. So if you take those bass notes into consideration, we're actually dealing with some chord inversions, sort of like we talked about in the episode on God Only Knows, though of course God Only Knows has more complicated harmony um, than Take My Breath Away. But basically we're starting on an A flat, which is just in root position, then we're going to a C minor over G, because the bass just walks down from the A flat to the G, then we're going to a D flat over F, and then we're going to an E flat over G. And the result of that is that the bass line is just this scale that walks down from A flat, A flat to G, to F, then back up to G, and then to A flat. And that's what happens a whole bunch of times in this song. Until it doesn't. And when they set up that B major, they play an E to an F sharp to set up the B major. So a measure before the downbeat of the new key, they're playing the 4 and the 5 to set it up. So they're playing, instead of playing an E flat chord, they're playing an E to an F sharp, which then leads to a B. Now an E chord is higher than an E flat chord, so why does it sound like it's going down? And the reason for that is that, remember, that E flat chord was played over G. It was a first inversion chord. 
but the E chord that they play, the bass plays an E, which puts it in root position. So because a first inversion E flat chord is actually has a higher bass note, because that's over a G, that has a higher bass note than a root position E major chord, even though an E major chord is a higher chord, E is higher than E flat by one half step. It kind of starts to bring in how this is all relative, like music is all just relative and harmony is all relative, like what does it even mean for something to be higher? Could it also be lower in a certain way? And yeah, you know, depending on the inversions you're talking about and the way that you're voicing the chord and the instrumentation, sure, it can sound lower, it can also sound higher. I mean, harmony moves in a circle, the circle of fourths or the circle of fifths. Think of it like when you're standing on the globe, the place that's one block away from you is one block away from you in that direction, or it's the entire distance of the world away from you in the opposite direction. But it is technically, you could reach it going in either direction, just like according to the way the earth works and the laws of geometry. But I feel like I'm getting sidetracked. The point is, they are indeed moving up. The vocals sing it up a minor third once they change the key. But in order to get there, because the bass is in root position there, an E in root position actually sounds like the bass is moving down compared to an E flat and first inversion with a G in the bass because it is a lower bass note than your ear is used to hearing and as a result it sounds like it goes down before it goes up. All right, I got two variations on this next one. Michelle writes, can you explain what's up with clapping on the two and four versus one and three? I know two and four is correct, but why do so many people clap on the one and three if it doesn't make musical sense? It's not just random clapping that has a 50-50 chance of being on the beat because they always clap on one of three. Is music not actually intuitive? Bess also asks, friends don't let friends clap on the one and three, right? We clap on the two and four because clapping on the downbeat feels like we're cheering on some kind of culty death march. But why? is this the case? Why does it feel and sound so stilted and wrong to clap on the downbeat? Okay, so this is a great question. Let me share some thoughts on it. So for starters, just like one, two, three, four, those are the downbeats of the bar, just to make sure everyone's on the same page here. And generally speaking at like rock concerts and stuff, when they ask the audience to clap along, which is always a kind of a fraught thing to do, but also a lot of fun when you get everybody clapping along, they a lot of times will ask the audience to clap on two and four. All right, let me try to recreate the circumstances for this. I'm gonna get up my guitar and I'm going to play a kind of classic sounding guitar riff. Here we go. It seems to sound bigger. Let's add some reverb. We're gonna add some like stadium reverb to make it sound like I'm playing in a stadium. All right, so maybe at this point when I'm playing this riff, the drummer starts clicking his sticks together over his head, indicating that everyone should clap and the singer starts clapping over his head. Time to clap, everybody. Now that's kind of an ideal situation. Everybody starts clapping on two and four. Also, you're playing a song that's a really slow tempo with a very clear, like clearly delineated groove. Everyone kind of knows what to clap. However, anyone who's ever played in a rock band and had the audience clap along can probably tell you that what starts with the audience clapping, where they started clapping on two and four, can sort of shift over time. What was going really well on the two and the four for a little while can sort of slow down or maybe speed up and everyone stops hearing it because the room is, you know, kind of bouncy. And before you know it, everybody's clapping on the one and three. Now here's the thing, clapping on one and three isn't wrong. Clapping on two and four isn't right. A lot of times the band wants you to clap on one or the other because that's kind of where the groove is and they just want everybody to be together. But there are types of music where when a big crowd or an audience claps along, they clap on one and three. For example, bluegrass music. If you hear a bluegrass hoedown and the audience is clapping along, it's gonna sound like I mean, they're clapping on downbeats and that groove's just fine for that type of music. It's like appropriate for the music because it matches up with the pulse and everybody's clapping together. Same thing goes for a lot of Latin music. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here because there's a whole lot of different grooves and feels in a lot of different types of Latin music, but you'll hear a lot of Latin bands, you know, when they get the audience clapping, it'll be on one and three, a kind of a like, when the drum line comes out at the beginning and everybody gets going, a lot of times the audience will be clapping on one and three. It totally complements the groove and it works 
perfectly. Those two types of clapping on the one and the three versus on the two and the four actually fall in different places according to the Strong Song's thump, pop, sizzle, groove breakdown. When an audience is asked to clap on two and four, it's usually because the music involved has some sort of a backbeat or is backbeat heavy, meaning that the pop, the snare drum, is hitting on the two and the four. So the thump, pop, and sizzle, remember, are the thump of the kick drum, the pop of the snare drum, and the sizzle of cymbals. Though any of those sounds can be other sounds, they just kind of have to fulfill that role. You can substitute something in for the thump or something in for the pop or something in for the sizzle. And in the case of hand claps, the claps are being substituted for the pop anytime the audience is clapping on two and four. In fact, hand claps are actually used as a pop a lot of times in the studio too. This isn't just a live thing. So you're kind of taking the audience and making them part of the band, sometimes in a very direct way in that you're recreating the uh, the studio version of the song that you're playing live by having the audience clap along because there are claps in the studio version. So any song with a backbeat where the snare is doing that pop on two and four is probably going to want claps on the two and four because claps sound more like a snare drum. Take the beginning of Queen's we will rock you. So the claps there are the pop, those are kind of the snare drum, and the kick drum, the thump, is being simulated by stomps, by feet on the ground, because it's a lower pitch, it sounds more like a kick drum. So when music is backbeat heavy, like a lot of rock music and a lot of funk music, it's more likely that the band is going to ask the audience to clap on the two and four because that's where the pop is, that's where the snare drum is emphasizing um, the two and the four. If the music doesn't have as strong of a backbeat, you might hear the audience clapping on one and three. So it really depends on the kind of music. Now I do think there's an element of snobbishness to this, and that's because clapping on the two and four is probably a little bit more difficult than clapping on the one and three. The one and three are downbeats, and there's kind of a gravitational pull to them, so an audience will tend to revert to one and three, where the two and the four are a little bit more like upbeats, you know? Like funkier music is more syncopated, and it can be a little more challenging to clap on the two and four. So when audiences revert to the one and three, they're kind of reverting to the simpler way of clapping, which is sort of looked down on. Where if you have a kind of a square audience, they're going to clap on one and three. And if you have a hip, very musical audience, they're going to clap on two and four, and they're going to really groove super hard. In the end, though, that stuff is all kind of gatekeepery and judgmental when it really comes down to it. The important thing is that everybody is clapping together. The band is feeling it. The pulse is feeling it. The room is feeling it because clapping together as an audience is really a great feeling. I mean, it taps into something really deep within us and lets us all connect to the music in an amazing way. And the important thing is that everyone's just doing it and feeling free and having fun and connecting musically with one another, whether they're clapping on two and four or they're clapping on one and three. Our next question comes from Adam, who writes, I would love to hear you talk about the mechanics of the horn section, especially within the context of popular music. I have read that Otis Redding, who did not read music, would sing the parts he wanted his horn sections to play. In popular music today, who typically directs the horns? A producer? One of the horn players? Him or herself? Are there go-to parts that every horn section can readily contribute? This is a fun question, mostly because I am a horn player and a nerd and have played in a lot of horn sections, so there are a lot of interesting little mechanics or at least interesting to people who are into that kind of like little nerdy thing about how bands work. So let's zoom out to who makes the parts to begin with. There's a whole variety of ways that this can work. There are artists who do things like they'll sing the parts to the band. The band will figure out the horn parts in the studio. A lot of times in the studio now because time is at such a premium because you're paying for studio time you really want to have charts written out. A lot of producers will write horn parts or they'll contract it to someone who is a specialist at writing horn parts. That's actually something that I do. I've written horn arrangements for a lot of bands, a lot of Portland bands recently. It's very, very fun to do that. I love coming in and just adding horns to an existing song when a band maybe couldn't do it for themselves or didn't have the sort of horn writing literacy because it spices up almost any recording and just about everything is made better with a horn section. So I really, really like doing that. I take charts very seriously. I think that any professional horn arranger would take charts very, very seriously. I'm a stickler about music notation. I write very neat charts. I bring in precisely what I want because that is very, very valuable um, when you're paying for studio time or really just in general. If if you bring in a horn section, you hire people to play your music, give them a good chart. So a lot of times now when you go into the studio, you will hopefully get a really good chart to play that will give you all the dynamics and the chart and the, you know, the sort of roadmap of the tune and everything that you need so that you waste a minimum of time sort of talking through what you want to do and how this is going to work and where you're supposed to play. I have gone into recording sessions where there's no chart, where the, the 
band leader sort of talks you through what they want or they try to play it to you on the piano. You're expected to memorize it on the spot. That can work. That can also waste a lot of time and lead to less precise performances, which is never good. So in general, there is usually a chart these days, and that's true both in the studio and also for live performances. As to like section leaders and who directs the band, that's um, a little different depending on what kind of a horn section you have. There's usually someone who's in charge of directing everybody. Good sections usually decide on that ahead of time. A lot of times it's trumpet players, I think because their instrument sticks out a little bit and it's easier to see. So when they're cutting off held notes, it's easier to see them. I think trombone would be great for this, but I don't see a lot of trombone section leaders. Maybe that's because conducting a cutoff with a trombone is actually so involved because the trombone sticks out so much that it's easier to have someone with a slightly more, uh, slightly smaller instrument do it. But yeah, there's usually someone who's designated to be in charge if it's like a four or five horn horn section to cut off, um, especially the long notes and to kind of give cues and to kind of tell people what to play where. And then there's the question of section leaders, which is a different thing. That's for larger horn ensembles, a jazz big band, for example. You know, there will be a section leader, the lead alto players, the section leader of the saxophones, lead trumpet, lead trombone. That's the player who usually designates how things are going to be interpreted. So they'll, you know, they'll tongue it a certain way. They'll they'll do a certain type of articulation and everyone will follow them, at least if it's a good section. And that's usually the role of the section leader. And then also they'll sometimes, you know, conduct cutoffs just among their section. So there is always a section leader designated in larger ensembles. That's true in orchestras as well. There, you know, is like a first chair or a lead part in, in each of the sections. And those are the kind of lieutenants underneath the, uh, the general who is the, you know, the conductor the person in charge of the entire ensemble. Sammy writes, a quick question. Everybody loves a major to minor chord change, like the self-referential one in Cole Porter's Every Time We Say Goodbye. There's no love song finer, but how strange the change from major to minor every time we say but can you think of a minor to major change? Well, a few things come to mind with this question. First of all is any ending that does a Picardy third, which is this sort of a song that is in minor and then just surprisingly out of nowhere ends on major. I always think actually of the Justice song Horsepower and the way that they end on this super epic major chord out of nowhere. That has, uh, it always cracks me up every time I hear it. Right here. <laughs> so that's a Picardy third. That's like a major third out of nowhere, which is a kind of a cool way to end a song. However, I can't I can't not reference the thing that really comes to mind based on Sammy's example of um, every time we say goodbye, and that is a self-referential shift from minor to major, which of course happens in Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah, hallelujah. That opening verse of the song is one of the most famous called shots in songwriting. I really like that verse because it outlines the chords of the song. That version is being sung by the great Rufus Wainwright. Of course, Jeff Buckley, who we recently covered, also did probably the definitive version of that. But there are a lot of good versions, and I really like how Rufus sings this song as well. And what happens there, yeah, is this song, it begins on the C chord. This is in C, and it goes like this. It goes the fourth, which is F, the fifth to G, then the minor fall, which is A minor, to the major lift, which just lifts one note, the E becomes an F, and it becomes an F major chord. So that shift from A minor to F major is both called out in the lyrics and also a uh, distinct shift from minor to major. Of course, there are plenty of other examples of songs that go from major to minor or minor to major. Those colors work well in contrast to one another and can exist within the same song. A song doesn't have to just be major or minor. That being said, that Cole Porter example is actually the four major going to four minor, so a chord going from a major to a minor version of itself, which is a kind of cadence that I've talked about on this show before, four to four minor. That happens sometimes. Also, two dominant will go to two minor sometimes. I don't see as often a chord going from a minor to a major version of itself, you know, one right after the other, outside of, you know, that Picardy cadence. So that, I think, is actually less common.
Augustine writes, I am currently learning multiple instruments at the same time, piano, saxophone, voice, and I'd like to start on the electric bass. I read that learning more than one instrument at the same time is not a good idea when you are starting. Is that true, and should I focus on one? I would say that yes, in general, I actually do think that that's true, at least when you're starting out. If you're learning a new instrument and really just going over like basic fundamental technique stuff, it's pretty important to, I think at least, keep your focus just on that one instrument. And I find even now I play a whole bunch of instruments, but for me, I can't really do a thing where I like cycle between them every other day and I play a little bit of drums one day and a little bit of guitar one day and a little bit of piano the other day. Those are the three instruments in addition to voice that I'm actually like really actively practicing right now. And if I do that, I don't find that I make as much progress. If I want to make progress instead, I'll kind of, I don't specifically do this, but it'll be like it's drum month and then every day I practice drums and then it's guitar month and every day for that month I practice guitar. That's me. I'm like pretty proficient on those instruments, though I'm not great. I'm just, I'm, I'm still learning a lot, but I'm to the point where I can kind of do that. I would say if you're starting out, like if I was learning a brand new instrument, if I was going to learn violin, I would just play violin every day for six months or something to just really, really live with the instrument because you've got to get very familiar with an instrument when you're starting out. And the only way to really get that kind of familiarity that you need is to play it every single day and really live with it. Augustine has a second question. He says, as I said before, I'm learning the sax. I have enough technique to be dangerous. And my teacher is starting to introduce concepts about how to develop my own sound. We're talking about things like vibrato, what does it mean to have a bright sound, how to adjust those things to the kind of music you're playing, and stuff like that. So my questions are, I know it's personal, but what is your saxophone sound? What do you aim to sound like when you play? I'm struggling to get an idea of what sound I want to have. I kind of understand the process, play long notes, when to play them, listen to other saxophones, etc., but I don't seem to be able to extract something useful from it. When I'm actually playing a song, I'm too preoccupied with hitting the right notes at the right tempo to worry over much about the vibrato I'm using or how bright my tone is. How can one develop that? So Augustine, for starters, the fact that you're saying you're more focused on the notes that you're playing, playing in time than you are on your sound, that's totally normal. And the sound tends to come later. This is kind of true on every instrument. The first thing you need to get is just the basic technique, the ability to play the notes, the ability to play the notes with a metronome in time. Stuff that's really stylistic and your sound is very stylistic tends to come after. That's why more mature players tend to have a really distinct sound because they've mastered the instrument. They can play all the notes and they've really then had the sort of ability like the space to focus on their sound. So don't worry too much about it. It is something that will come kind of naturally and will come a little later as you continue to progress on the saxophone. For now, focus on your technique and focus on playing in tune. This is a very important tip for saxophone players. Play with a tuner. Get an, a chromatic tuner that can give you a little needle and tell you where you're playing. And when you play long notes, be sure that you're playing in tune because the first step to getting a good sound is playing in tune. The instrument was designed to play in tune. So when it's playing in tune and each of your notes is in tune, you'll then be able to kind of build on that and start to add the sort of things, you know, brightness, darkness, subtone, vibrato, all of those things that give you a distinct sound. Now, as for my sound, that's not a personal, I mean, it's a personal question because it's a personal thing. Everybody has a personal sound, but it's not like overly personal or anything. I'm happy to talk about um, my saxophone sound and, and how I kind of developed that over the years. The way that you develop a saxophone sound, just like on any instrument, is you listen to the players that you like, you transcribe and learn to imitate them, and you begin to just kind of amalgamize all the different things and the aspects of their sound into your own sound and it kind of just becomes personal if you do that a lot. So listening is super important. You don't even have to be like consciously listening and noticing, you know, oh, I like how he does those little vibrato shakes at the end of his notes. Just pick the saxophone sounds that you like at first and listen, 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 listen more than you even think you possibly could. And then eventually once you're kind of there, you'll begin transcribing solos, transcribing and playing along with them, putting headphones on and sort of playing so that they're as loud in your ears as you are and really trying to mimic their sound. I have transcribed a lot of solos, especially back when I was in school, when I was learning the saxophone, I transcribed a ton of solos. And the main artists that I transcribed were my favorite saxophone players. They were the ones that I want to sound like. And I would say that my sound is actually kind of a combination of them. Obviously, I am not as good as any of them, but um, but I do think I kind of hear their influence in my sound. So let me get my horn out and just play a little bit. This is what I sound like on the tenor saxophone, which is my primary uh, saxophone. <laughs> So 
So it's not the most distinct tone in the world. I think any saxophone players listening to this would probably be able to pick out some of my influences just by hearing that little bit. But, um, you know, I, I kind of go back to some, some classic players, and those are the kinds of sounds that I like. Something a little bit softer, a little bit more subtony that can still hit when it needs to, and can be funky when it needs to, but it is nowhere near as bright and hard as, you know, a lot of pop or fusion sax players. Um, I prefer things on the kind of darker end, and that's where I like the saxophone sound. I think the tenor sax should sound really big and fluffy. So who are my guys? Well, the four saxophone players who probably had the biggest influence on my tone and who I most actively imitated when I was coming up as a saxophone player are Sonny Rollins. Mr. Stan Getz, one of the greatest, biggest tenor saxophone sounds that ever existed. And for more modern players, Mr. Joshua Redman, a beautiful, very centered tone and a really playful swing feel that actually um, has been a big influence on me. I swing notes very similar to him just because I listen to him so much and I think he swings really hard. Lastly, Chris Potter, the fabulous Chris Potter, who really knows how to hit it. He can get a kind of good squawk. He kind of overblows his horn in ways that I like, that I find very useful, depending on the style that I'm playing. Last note on saxophone sound is that don't overly obsess on like mouthpieces and reeds and stuff. Like, yeah, a metal mouthpiece will give you a kind of brighter sound. Um, a harder reed can give you kind of a different sound than a softer reed. I'm playing on a pretty middle of the road reed on an Autolink 7 hard rubber mouthpiece, which is like the most middle of the road mouthpiece you can get. And it gives me the flexibility to get a lot of different sounds. But so much of it is in your throat, it's in your breath, it's in your embouchure, and it's in your ears, it's in your head. You know, it's all those things that you've listened to, all those players, all of those solos that you've transcribed over the years kind of eventually culminate in a sound. Kitty asks, hi Kirk, I have a question about how you refer to notes, i.e. whole note, half note, quarter note. Do you learn the names of notes as semibrevs, minims, quavers, semiquavers? Is that a US-UK-Australian thing? And yes, it is a US-UK-Australia thing, and in the US, we don't really learn, or at least I didn't really learn, that language. Um, it's just like a, it's kind of like the metric system and the American system in the US, and I think in other places in the world, we just use, you know, eighth notes, quarter notes, sixteenth notes, and so on. I didn't learn the other way. I'm sure there are arguments both ways for like which one makes more sense. I know that sometimes a quarter note can seem kind of weird because it's a quarter of a bar but only if you're in 4-4 time and then suddenly it stops being a quarter note but there's also maybe some counter to that argument that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. Really when it comes down to it it's just it's what I learned. It's how I think of it. In the end whatever gets you there works and it's a little frustrating that there isn't just one system but I feel that way about the metric system as well so what are you going to do? Kathy asks, in the police song Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic during the bridge, there's a sound that feels like it doesn't belong, like some kind of feedback. Can you explain it? Do you think it's deliberate or a mistake? Well, let's listen to the clip in question, and then I will say what I think it is. All right, well, you can hear it over there on the right channel, right? That's a D. It's just like a sine wave on a D. Still going. Every 
It's a cool song. Um, so I, you know, that's not a mistake. That's just like a sort of synthesizer, some sort of a keyboard ringing out a D, which is the root of this, like the tonic note of this song. So it's it doesn't sound bad. You know, it's a different chord tone for each chord on the bridge, but it works. And I think it's just meant to add an element of tension as the chords are moving around, but this one steady note is just kind of going. And it's a cool effect, though. This song is pretty interesting. I was listening to this and thinking, man, there's a lot of keyboard on this track, which is actually kind of unusual for um, a police song, just because the police was a trio. It was Andy Summers on guitar, Stuart Copeland on drums, and Sting played bass and sang. There wasn't a regular keyboard player, though there are keyboards on some of their tracks. It's really noticeable in this uh, in this arrangement, and that is being played by a keyboard in addition to like a piano part over on the left, and then a bunch of other piano parts. And I did a little looking, it actually looks like that was sort of a point of contention during the recording of this. Um, that's uh, Jean Roussel playing the keyboard player. He's a session keyboard player, and uh, he added a bunch of different keyboard parts. And apparently, the uh, three members of the band didn't totally agree on what would sound best, though the song was a huge hit, and everybody loves it now, so I guess what they did worked. But it is a little bit unusual compared to their usual sound. And that D is a bold choice. I mean, having one note kind of ring out like that, I understand, um, Kathy, why you would think that it's sort of maybe not supposed to be there or wonder what it is. But yeah, I think it's just placed there to create an amount of tension. And it's kind of a synthesizer, I think, a very straightforward sort of sine wave synthesizer, just creating a very pure D that rings out through the whole bridge. Russ asks, if a saxophone was straight instead of curvy, would it sound different? Is it curved just so a human hand can reach all the keys, or is it an acoustic thing? Well, it wouldn't sound very different because there are straight saxophones. Those are out there, um, and they sound pretty much the same. I think they can sometimes sound a little bit different, but it's not really a sound thing. That's not the reason that a saxophone is curved. So for starters, the more exotic straight saxophones, like one is called a saxello, I think. And if you want to see some pretty cool straight saxophones, find videos of the free jazz. Jazz, uh, 1960s free jazz player, Rasan Roland Kirk. He was an incredible player who was notable not just because he had a super cool last name, but because he was known for playing more than one saxophone at the same time. You've actually probably seen pictures of him, like this guy sitting there in sunglasses with like four saxophones hanging off of his chest, blowing on them. And it's worth watching videos of him because he would play them all at the same time, put all the mouthpieces in his mouth at the same time and just like, ah, like blow a chord, which kind of works. Some of the horns were just ringing open notes. He did come up with some kind of engineered ways of playing, you know, fingering more than two saxophones. But a lot of times I think he would just work the top three keys on two saxes and let the other ones ring out. And in order to fit all those horns, he would play, I know he played a straightened alto saxophone that he called a stretch. And it's pretty wild looking. It's like a big, long, straight horn that's the size of an alto saxophone, just if you straightened it out. And it sounds pretty cool. Here, check out this clip of Rasan Roland Kirk playing. So that's one guy playing three saxophones, and part of the way that he made that work was by straightening some of them out. So the reason that I don't think they sound different is because I actually play a straightened saxophone. My soprano saxophone is a straight saxophone. If you look at the cover of like Coltrane's My Favorite Things, he's playing a soprano saxophone on that cover. It's a straight horn, and not all soprano saxophones are actually straight. They're pretty commonly thought of as straight. It looks like a bigger metal clarinet, kind of. But there are curved uh, soprano saxophones. I remember in school, a lot of guys would play um, Yanagisawa soprano saxophones which are curved and they just look like a tiny little cute precious little alto saxophone and they sound basically the same they sound great some people like them better because they say it's easier to play in tune but the fingering on the keys isn't really an issue like a straight horn or a curved horn you're going to put your fingers in the same place it's more just the size of the horn and if you straighten out a tenor saxophone you're just going to have like a big long thing that looks like an alpine mountain horn or something you know or a straightened baritone sax is going to be this huge metal object that requires a case that's like seven feet long. Like it'd just be really hard to carry around. There are some other reasons that a curved horn works better, like related to keys and the ways that keys, like the mechanisms that press down the pads um, that I don't need to get into. But basically it's not a sound thing. It's a practicality thing. And there are straightened saxophones. They're out there. Okay, this next question is one that I've gotten from several people. Um, I'll let Ambrose's version of it stand in for everybody. He writes, 
Okay, you're a horn player and you know music notation, so the subject must seem normal to you, but every time I hear it, it's like you're coming from a different planet. The notes on a saxophone or trumpet aren't the same as the notes on a guitar or piano. I mean, you casually will say things like E-flat, but he's playing sax, so to him that's a C. To me, a simple guitar player, that's insane. 440 hertz is an A for a guitar player and the piano player, but not for a horn. How does anything ever get done if every time the guitar player in a band says, in this part we all play C and the horn players have to translate? Also, can't a sax player get a special rock sax a semitone higher so they can fit in with the guitar players or something like a capo equivalent to fit onto their instrument? Okay, so that's a lot from Ambrose, and this is something that a lot of people have asked about, and the concept here is called transposition. And what that means is that for some instruments, when they play a C, like their C written on the page, it sounds different than a C on the piano, which is kind of the standard, and that's called concert pitch. So a concert C on, say, an alto saxophone is an A. On a tenor saxophone, that's a D, and that's because those two instruments transpose differently. So for starters, why is this the case? There are a lot of reasons. One of the main ones is because because saxophones, for example, transpose, I can play every saxophone the same way. So I can learn to play tenor saxophone, but then I can also play alto saxophone or soprano saxophone, and my fingers will go to the same place for the same notes. It makes it a lot easier for me as a player because I'm playing D major, it's just that I'm playing D major on alto saxophone, which sounds different relative to other instruments. That's especially important with written music, and that's where this really matters, because I've learned to read music on woodwinds, and because every woodwind I play basically has really similar fingerings, I can read music on all of those instruments. It's really consistent. I don't have to learn a new way of reading music for each one, which would be really, really hard. In a way, it actually kind of is like a capo for a saxophone because it lets me play different saxophones that are in different keys using the same fingering so I don't have to learn a whole new fingering for each one, and that actually makes me more versatile. To put it in um, guitar player terms, when you play with a capo, say you're playing with a capo on the third fret, you're probably not thinking I'm playing E flat, then B flat, then A flat. You're probably thinking I'm playing a C shape, then a G shape, then an F shape. That's the magic of the capo is that you can think in terms of your open strings just up the neck and you can play in different keys. When you're playing on different kinds of saxophones, it's actually the same kind of principle. You don't have to learn all new fingerings because you're playing a slightly smaller instrument or a slightly larger instrument. It's more or less like if instead of putting a capo on your guitar, you cut the neck off right there and you played a guitar that just tuned to a different key. So you might be reverse engineering this and wondering, well then why isn't there some device that works like a capo on the saxophone where you can temporarily make the instrument longer or shorter and change its pitch without getting a whole new horn and the reason for that is just that horns don't work that way like they're not strings on a fretboard that you can just lay a capo across it's a big resonating instrument and you need a whole new instrument to make a whole new sound that way now I've been talking about saxophone, but it's not just saxophones. I play flute and clarinet, and flute and clarinet have very similar fingerings to saxophones as well. Pretty much all woodwinds have very similar fingerings. And as a result, once you kind of know, you know, like a C major scale, it just feels kind of like white keys on a piano. It's like a very open fingering. And then E flat is always kind of here with the pinky key, and A flat is right up above the G with the left pinky. And you get to know those fingerings, and it makes you really versatile, because you can go from instrument to instrument, even though they're all tuned differently, because they all need to fit into different places in the ensemble. And this is one reason why it's really important that horn players learn things in all 12 keys. Any good horn player will be able to play pretty much anything in all 12 keys. Obviously you'll have keys you're more comfortable with, but it's a really different proposition on a saxophone to play something in all 12 keys than it is on guitar because guitar is so symmetrical. So it's a really different kind of conception, but it's important that horn players be comfortable playing in all 12 keys. And this is also true for brass. Trumpet, of course, is a B-flat instrument. The French horn, also known as the F horn, is an F. So there are a lot of wind instruments that transpose, and that's the reason for it. It's kind of all sort of confusing, so I don't want to spend too long on it, just because relative stuff like this always winds up sounding kind of confusing. But it's basically because the fingerings of the instrument have been given precedent, and having them be consistent across every instrument is more important than having them represent the concert pitches that they're making. Because if you switched it the other way, it would make doubling a lot harder, and if you played one saxophone, you'd have to relearn whole new fingerings to read the same music on another saxophone. One interesting thing is there is a C saxophone. It's called the C melody saxophone. Um, early jazz player Frankie Trombauer played one. I know there were more of them sort of in the very early 20th century.
It never really caught on. It's kind of a weird horn. I've never played one, but the tenor saxophone is a B flat instrument and the alto saxophone is an E flat instrument. It's higher. The C instrument, so then, is a little higher than a tenor saxophone. So it looks kind of like a tenor saxophone, but it's a little bit smaller. And it's just kind of an odd horn. It's like a, a historical anomaly that never really caught on because the tenor sax and the alto sax have distinct enough ranges that they're both very useful in the ensemble. But the C melody saxophone is kind of redundant uh, with the tenor saxophone, so it never really caught on. Dave asks, what's the difference between a bridge and a pre-chorus? This is a lot easier to explain than transposition, so um, let's let's do it. Uh, a bridge and a pre-chorus, they're kind of two sections of the song that aren't the verse and aren't the chorus and exist in their own place. The difference, as I see it anyways, is that the pre-chorus happens before the chorus. The pre-chorus precedes the chorus and sets it up. So pre-choruses tend to exist in a kind of setup place where they build towards something, they uh, open the door for the chorus. The pre-chorus, at least in song that have a pre-chorus also tends to happen more than once. It usually happens before the chorus every time. Not always every time, but it sets up the chorus and it can happen more than once. The bridge is very different. The bridge usually only happens once. It happens a little later in the song than the pre-chorus, since the pre-chorus is setting up the chorus. It usually happens before the very first chorus. A lot of times, at least traditionally, the bridge will come after the second chorus. So it'll go verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. The bridge is just like a very different harmony, a different groove maybe, just something very different that kind of bridges that second chorus and the kind of end of the song, which sometimes can be a verse and a chorus, an outro, maybe just another chorus, uh, maybe a solo, like a guitar solo will come after the bridge. Uh, maybe the bridge will come after the solo, but the bridge is like a very different section of the song that exists on its own and typically only happens once. For a good example of both of those, actually, listen back to the episode about Annie Lennox's Walking on Broken Glass. That song has a killer pre-chorus that happens before every chorus, and it also has a really cool bridge that happens later in the song, and you can tell the difference right there. The pre-chorus happens multiple times and sets up the chorus. The bridge only happens the once. Bridges are really hard to write. I actually always struggle to write bridges because you have to have a totally new idea. You can't just keep developing the ideas you've been working on. You kind of have to jump out of the, the groove that you've been in. And man, you know who's really good at writing bridges is Amy Mann. She writes the best bridges. I'm always just impressed. Her songs just always naturally go to these really interesting bridges. And I love the way that she writes a bridge. Time for the bridge. That's from The Forgotten Arm, which is a really great Amy Mann album that just, her bridges just leave me agog at how good they are. Um, every song doesn't have to have a bridge. A lot of times I'll be writing a song and I can't come up with one and I'll just say, hmm. Maybe this song doesn't need a bridge. We'll just we'll put a little solo here. But uh, a lot of good songs do have bridges, and I love a good bridge, like all the great bridges on The Forgotten Arm and so many other albums. But uh, yeah, I hope that that makes the distinction a little clearer. Jeff writes in, My question is about Snarky Puppy and the keyboard solo from Lingus, their tune. In the music video, when Corey Henry starts playing some crazy lines on the keyboard, the keyboard player next to him just starts cracking up. Is Henry using chord extensions or just his own little harmonic journey? Do you have any clue as to why the other keyboard player can't stop laughing? Okay, so this is a really ripping tune. Um, it's really fun to watch it on YouTube because Snarky Puppy actually records um, all of their stuff live in the studio. They all set up in the studio and then they have an audience sit wearing headphones quietly in the studio with them and that's how they cut their records. This is from the album We Like It Here. Lingus is probably my favorite Snarky Puppy track. Um, I really dig this one and it's mostly because of Corey Henry's completely absurd keyboard solo. So the other keyboard player that Jeff is talking about is named Sean Martin and he's super good too actually. So this is like two really good keyboard players and there's a really fun moment in the solo that Jeff describes where Sean Martin is kind of just watching Corey Henry play and he's increasingly like oh come on man oh come on and eventually he just like takes off his headphones and kind of walks away and it's a little bit of theater like he's having a good time and kind of putting on a show for the crowd but it's him just saying give me a break dude you're you're killing it so hard this is so good i can't even listen anymore i just like i'm walking away i'm not worthy which is just a, a cute and fun way of sort of showing respect to another player um, when you're kind of performing together Ha <laughs> ha. 
So we're coming up on the section in question here. Corey Henry is getting increasingly into it. He's mostly playing in the kind of key that they're in, but he's starting to step out more and more and more. And then he starts playing this figure. Kind of takes it up here. And then he decides to go all the way out. point where Sean Martin is kind of cracking up and it, this is the pretty much the section in question and yeah what he's doing is he, I mean he's playing out I mean a jazz musician would call this out he's stepping pretty far outside of the harmony and just totally marching to his own beat he's kind of playing rhythmically out too he's just on his own frequency and it's a really fun thing about this solo he locks in at times and really starts like totally ripping in the tempo of the song but at other times he's just kind of like doing his own thing he's kind of like dialing into a different frequency and then when he takes it so far out harmonically and rhythmically it's just it's a delight and i think it's really fun how sean martin reacts so that's what's going on he's he's playing harmony that you would not expect to play over this and he's kind of doing doing it so emphatically and confidently that Sean Martin is just like, oh, come on, man, listen to you. What are you even doing? I talked about this concept of kite and anchor solos during the episode on Rush's Tom Sawyer, and this is a great example of a kite and anchor solo. I mean, Corey Henry is very much a kite at times, both rhythmically and harmonically. He just totally flies free while the rhythm section is holding down this actually really dense groove, and it makes for a super fun contrast. And then when he comes back and begins locking with the time again, that also really feels super cool because he's been flying so far afield. Definitely go check that out if you want to just watch a super fun uh, live performance on YouTube. Watch the performance of Snarky Puppy playing Lingus. Brian writes in, My seven-year-old daughter Evie has a question for you. Can you do an episode about the She-Ra theme song? Brian adds, This song is a banger that we all really love, and I think you might have mentioned it on the show at some point, if memory serves. Well, I can't do a whole episode about it, but I do like this song. The song is called Warriors by Aaliyah Rose, and it's the theme song from the new Netflix version of She-Ra, which is called She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. I'm really just including this question to say, Evie and Brian, I agree with you. That song is a banger. And we actually just finished watching the final season of this show, and it's a really good show. So if you have kids who want to watch something cool, or if you just want to watch a good show yourself, I do recommend the Netflix She-Ra. For our last question, let's go to Chris, who writes, I have always wondered about the differences between studio recordings and live performances. What music sounds and effects are significantly more difficult to perform or even impossible when performing a song live? Is it possible to listen to a studio album and hear certain things that you know would be different in a live performance? To answer the second question first, there aren't really any things that I'll hear on an album and think that won't be in the live performance, only because well, a lot of bands play with tracks, and the backing tracks will make up any of the tracks that they can't recreate live, so you could hear something that's a essentially indistinguishable from the album, except that the lead instruments are being played live, and, you know, hopefully the lead vocals are being sung live as well. And that can sound great, you know, it's not necessarily a lip-syncing thing, it just can be a way of fleshing out the live performance. Uh, But, you know, generally speaking, no, when I hear something on a track, I could hear it live or not. The one thing that you typically don't hear live, that you hear a lot of in studio tracks, is vocal processing and vocal doubling. So, anytime you hear the lead singer doubling a track and singing backup with themselves, and there's like four different versions of the lead singer going like that isn't going to happen live there are exceptions i play with the shook twins a wonderful uh, identical twin a songwriting duo and they're able to do some pretty cool things with doubling effects live because they're both such good singers and they have such similar voices
but obviously most bands don't have identical twin singers. Uh, they can, backup singers can also do a lot of that. You know, you'll see someone in the backup singers will be covering the parts that the lead singer multi-tracked in the studio, and that can sound really good. But when you hear something like, to take a song that we covered, um, Seal's Kiss from a Rose, all of the vocals that are happening on that, like that just doesn't happen when he does it live because he can't clone himself and do that. And I don't think they sing with a track either. So it just is something that happens in the studio and doesn't happen live. And that's probably the primary thing, though, of course, there are some other effects, other things that typically just happen in the studio and don't happen live. And that'll do it for this Q&A episode. Thanks so much to everybody who sent in questions. If you would like to send me a question for consideration for a possible future Q&A episode, send it to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Strong Songs is a listener-supported show. Thank you so much to all of my Patreon patrons. If you want to find out more about how to help me keep making this show, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs. There is no outro soloist this week, but that's for a special reason. It has been pretty widely requested that I provide a version of the outro music for this show with no solos so that people at home can try soloing along with it for themselves if they want. So that is what I've done. I've uploaded it to my SoundCloud. There will be a link in the show notes and you can download it. There's also a link to a chart that has the chord changes. So if listening to this makes you inspired to try a solo, by all means do so. And uh, yeah, let me know if you do. That's it for now. I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song. This could be you right here. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it.